Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Tuesday. We are here and we got the light fixed, I see. Oh yeah. Wow. I thought it was a little bright. Now it's brighter. Now it's brighter. Seemed like it was yesterday. I think that was uh, just my imagination. But we definitely got the light in this place now. Jeez. Hmm. Well, Jeff Bezos says he wants to sell the Washington Post. Well, I mean, he seems like he's kind of flip-flopped back and forth on it, depending on who he was talking to. He's just looking for attention. (laughs) (laughs) He said, yes, I've heard that buzz, (laughs) he said with a smirk in a CNN interview. Uh, apparently, he's considering buying the Washington Commanders, the former Redskins. Can we say that or we cancel? I'm pretty sure somebody would be upset no matter how you call them. <laughs> I mean, you do have the part of the fan base that, or it may be a part of a different fan base that's suing over the mascot being the pig with the helmet. Oh, gosh. Does it ever end? No. Well, M and M. Not when there's a, a cottage industry to be perpetually offended within. <laughs> that is true. It is not only is it an industry, it's quite the lucrative industry. You've seen this report. We were on it, by the way, before I gotta say, we were on this before it hit really the mainstream national news. This withholding of national merit awards in the great state of Virginia. And at first we thought It looked like it was just one school, one school in one district. And then it it, uh, evolves that, no, it's 17 schools across three districts. Well, they're just practicing their little, their own little approach to equity. Not only that, to your point, they hired an equity consultant, which is the biggest scam in this country. Are these dead gum DEI consultants? Four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for this district, this public school district. Now it is quite the affluent district, maybe one of the most in the country, up there in Loudoun County. Yeah, which is close to what Washington D.C. Wonder why all the money is concentrated there. Gee, I wonder. <laughs> 
So they hire this consultant, 450000 that says, yeah, you can't give them those National Merit Awards. We have to pursue equity. What the heck is equity? I'm asking it now, because this is something that has just swept every fragment of our society and been injected into it. Since when did it become unacceptable, taboo, frowned upon, to reward, to recognize excellence? That's where we are. We can't do that. These because people, an entire generation was BSed into believing of utopia was possible. Oh, by my so did the C students become B and the A become B or what? Where's the normalization? How does that work here? We all C, we all D. It's it. So we've said it before. The, it's less, the problem with applying pie in the sky ideals to reality. Well, it is beyond misguided. Honestly, it's evil. When you think about the way in which these school children who work their butts off, these students, they have been deprived. You only get to do it once. They've been deprived of the recognition for their exceptionalism. And there is certainly a swath of people in this country that did just really loathe and have deep contempt for exceptionalism. Not just economic, but now you see it in the classroom. What's yeah, next? They used to call those people losers. Right. But we never see anything designed around maybe helping those that didn't win the awards get better, improve. No, because that requires actual effort. Oh, can't do that, huh? No. Got to sit at home, live off the government, smoke weed, and play video games. Effort and equity are diametrically opposed. No doubt about that. So, you know, the Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, African-American female, she hit back on him. She said, this isn't America. I agree. You don't take the bread, I'm quoting, you don't take the bread out of one child's mouth for another child. We've done that in America. It doesn't work. It's been done elsewhere as well. Uh, it produces equity, okay. Equal misery. Equal mediocrity. Parents are expressing their outrage. So, I share this story because couple of points I want to make from it. One has to do with something you've said on the program many times. First thing is, perhaps our legislators need to consider a bill that is uh, essentially replicates what the governor in, in uh, Virginia and the lieutenant gov governor pushed through their legislature, which is a requirement. It's crazy you even have to do this if you think about it. And I don't know of any situations in Mississippi where this is occurring. But this is a preemptive. Just make sure it doesn't, because you don't want to find out after the fact. But it's a requirement that public schools notify families upon receipt of those awards at the school within a reasonable period of time. M immediately is what it ought to be, if you think about it. Before the day is out upon receipt. 
You know, we have all these tools to do that now. It's pretty cool. You don't have to actually like, go to the house. You don't have to call on a landline only to receive an infinite number of rings. There's other ways you can communicate with parents. How about that? And all these schools have all these tools expressly designed to keep a parent. You know, you know about that for emergency situations and weather and so forth. Um, Heck, just schoolwork. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. You got to log into the portal to get your day's lesson plan. And in fact, those who receive these awards, that ought to be the first thing you see on the splash page of the school. Seriously. What happened to those days? Who could forget? Well, you can't let little Timmy or little Jim or little Gene feel left out. <sighs> so, did that produce a bad country? Because that's the way it used to be. I could remember back in the old days, you waited for the honor roll to be posted. It was produced on a typewriter back then, and there would be little, little, little glass. In, uh, enclosed boards, little the bulletin board. Yeah, cork boards, as I recall, and they'd go put that those announcements up there, and it would include the release of the honor roll. And you would wait. I wonder if I made it this time. And you like to see your name up there. You celebrated it. Is there something wrong with that? What am I missing here? Well, if your name's never on that list, then you never get to celebrate. Well, maybe you ought to. Do something besides go out drinking and carousing and whatever the hell else you're doing that's keeping you off the list. It's called sacrifice. It's called risk-reward. That's the way the world works. Do they not get that? No, they just try to throw the word privilege at it and hope it sticks. It's sickening. But what I wanted to, where I wanted to go with something you have said on the program, which is... We're being influenced and essentially controlled by a very small fragment of the population. It's this case. Is there are somebody complaining about this, or is this this four hundred fifty thousand dollar equity consultant's idea? Probably the latter, thinking that he can engineer his own little socialist utopia. But you've probably seen recently the report about. A man going in a YMCA locker room out in California? We'll get to it later. We've got some sound from both that person and the 17-year-old who came across him in the locker room. And people are defending this nonsense, including the why. Well, maybe you ought to go somewhere else. We're going to let this man, because he's fully transitioned to a woman. Well, if he is, how did this 17-year-old detect that this person was a man? There's some other stories as well recently. A chief of police that's apologizing for flying a thin blue line flag on Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. I read a report yesterday where, once again, there's some people in a math class in a college somewhere in the country that said that it's cis-hetero-something or other that math is. And now that there's a group that is calling for... Aretha Franklin's Natural Woman song to no longer be played to be canceled. Natural Woman? <laughs> We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. We've got Grant Callen and Leah. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. 
on Super Talk Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi live from the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The C Spire text line 601-879-4395. Joining us now in the Element Wealth Studios, Grant Callen founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi, and Leah Ferretti, ESA Mom. ESA, of course, stands for Education Scholarship Account. Welcome, Grant. Leah, good to see you all. We've got a lot of stuff going on uh, with respect to school choice across the country. There has been a movement, for sure. I think to some extent, Grant, this uh, the COVID lockdowns perhaps uh, spurred even more interest, yep. more initiatives, more effort. But most recently, the great state of Iowa, Governor Reynolds, is set to sign a bill that would fairly significantly expand school choice and specifically ESAs in the state of Iowa. You keeping up with that? Oh, yeah. Very, very excited. Um, And you're right. The pandemic did more to disrupt the current situation and just remind parents that they ought to have education options because they started, for one, learning more about what their kids were learning. And they started started shopping around and seeing that maybe their school was closed. And so they were looking for something else. And we so we've seen this massive surge toward parents looking for education options and Iowa uh, particularly governor Kim Reynolds as you mentioned she has wrote she has just rode this wave and said we're gonna we're gonna act first to make sure families have education options so um, the house passed a bill earlier this week called the students first act the Senate debated it for hours last night it finally passed I think around midnight and it goes to the governor's desk today where she has led the charge for this and pledges to sign it um, this act is transformational and, and a couple of the particulars of it every child that choose to go to a private school will get seventy five hundred dollars and the school district that the student departs so if, if you're in a district and you have a student who leaves to go to private school utilizing this student's first program, you're going to get $1,200 for a student you no longer have to educate. And the idea there was a recognition that there are some fixed costs, there are some things that you're going to have to spend regardless of whether your enrollment drops some. And so their program goes into effect this fall. It will In, the, in year one, we'll focus on public school students current public school students who want to switch and private school students that are low income and then with three within three years it'll phase in and every student in the state of Iowa 
will have the option of, of choosing where they go to school. $7,600 from the state, which is the full amount of taxpayer money the state invests in a student's education, uh, would follow the student to their school of choice, including a private school. That's something that's been discussed here in Mississippi, but has been met with some resistance yeah. uh, for sure, which is why we really haven't gotten that to the level that we'd like to see it get. Tomorrow, Leah, the annual school choice rally yes. at the state capitol. My understanding is uh, you're going to be uh, a keynote speaker. I know. What an honor. That's um, great. I, I don't think Grant could find anybody else, so he called me <laughs> to come MC. But I am tickled to death. This is actually um, my family's fifth year to be involved at the School Choice Rally. Um, and my children look forward to it every year um, because they are the reason, you know, we, we need school choice. And they're the reason I promote school choice. Um, because that's where we started with on our journey. Tell the audience, uh, if you will, your your personal experience with school choice and why you have such a strong interest in this. Okay. Um, several years ago, my husband and I, we moved to Cleveland, Mississippi, um, to utilize our public schools. And, um, you know, it just we were going to send them to the local school, you know, no questions about it. Um, at the time, we didn't know that our oldest was dyslexic and he was struggling. Um, we call it his second tour of kindergarten, knew something was wrong. I am a school teacher as well. So um, we went and had him diagnosed, before, well, evaluated for learning disabilities. And at the time, I didn't even know that he had dyslexia. Um, diagnosis came back, dyslexia and all the fun things that come along with dyslexia. And living in the Mississippi Delta and in Mississippi where, you know, some of our resources are limited. And there was not a dyslexia therapist in the school district that my child attended. And I just assumed that he would get the correct resources. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't have a choice but to go back, for me to go back to school to get my master's degree in, dys in dyslexia therapy. And I went back to school to help my own child. Um, and then from there, you know, of course, um, dyslexia is uh, inherited. So, lucky me, um, maybe I should buy a lottery ticket. All three of my children are dyslexic. Wow. And um, so, you know, it was God's journey for us for me to go back to school mm -hmm. um, to provide that therapy. But, however, there was no therapy services allowed in the school. Um, so, of course, you know, as a mom, I'm, I'm desperate. I'm calling around. I'm giggling, like, what can I do? And um, I came upon Empower. Um, and through Grant and his organization, they directed me, you know, what the, to apply for the ESA, what the ESA was. I'm like, why don't we know about this? Um, and here we are in our fifth year that both of my boys um, have benefited from the ESA and now are in a school of choice um, where I have the free them to educate them how I choose fit. So dyslexia is more pervasive, I think, than the average person understands. And the central challenge is that it requires uh, specialized instructors, yes. instructors, teachers that are familiar with it and, and understand uh, how to educate a student with it. It's, yes. it's a different approach mm -hmm. than a student without dyslexia. And the, and the problem is we just simply don't have enough and we can't staff every school in every district with one. So if you're a parent of a child that is afflicted with it and you are tethered to uh, that particular school due to your address, which is what our law says, it's a problem in that your child's not getting the, the proper education. Oh, absolutely. And they're just going to currently slip. They're going to slip further and further behind if they're not giving the appropriate therapies. Right. So the ESA allows the family 
to enroll the student where they can be best educated to, to deal with and accommodate their dyslexia and, and make sure they they grow up to um, be able to be a productive adult. And that's yes. the end result yes. that we're looking for. And at the end of the day, it's the parents that take the children home. That's yeah. what I tell my parents. I'm like, you take them home at the end of the day. Like, you need to, you know what's best for your child yeah. and what they need to be successful. Yeah. And, and it's also yeah. worth, worth mentioning because there are a lot of families that have dyslexia, but because they don't have an IEP, do not qualify for the ESA program. Um, this has been a, a struggle for a lot of families. They, they're basically locked out of the program because in a lot of places you can't get an IEP for students with <laughs> dyslexia. Some you can, but in, in other places you can't. It's really inconsistent. Um, so there is legislation this year that uh, Representative Larry Byrd is advocating for that would expand the ESA program to students with dyslexia or an IEP okay. explicitly, which would make sure they're covered. Is is that determined at the district level? Yes. Is that how that works? Yes. Um, and I'll say, you know, and it's not easy to get dyslexia on an IEP. You know, I had to fight tooth and nail to get it on my child's IEP. Yeah. And now, you know, we are fortunate that our district does recognize dyslexia um, on the IEP. And it's just a stronger um it's stronger paperwork, so to say, you know, red tape that protects your child and makes sure that your child gets the correct services that they need. Yeah, and just for the benefit of our audience, that's an individualized education program, right? Is right. that what it stands for? Correct. It just means that the student has been deemed to need a, a different uh, education model yes. than a, a standard student without dyslexia. Mm -hmm. That's that's the bottom line here. Or, so. or any special needs. Yeah, so, or any special needs. I'm right. not limiting that to, right. uh, to dyslexia, right. So the uh, School Choice Rally tomorrow, Grant, that's something that Empower um, has held for since the inception of the organization, right? It's pretty close to it, yeah. I think our first one was in 2014 or 2015, and we took a two-year um, kind of hiatus because of COVID, um, although we, we did events around the state. Last year, we did a bus tour where we went to schools around the state and brought National School Choice Week to the schools. But we're back at the Capitol and extremely th thrilled to do so. This event is just such a beautiful, diverse picture of the diverse education landscape that is Mississippi. We've yeah. got magnet schools and traditional public schools participating in charter and homeschool and private schools. And we all come together not talking about what makes us separate or one school's better than another. It's just a celebration that we can all come together and celebrate that we have options and we need even more. What time is it? It is 9 a.m. tomorrow morning on the south steps of the state capitol. It's something to behold. Everybody's there in the, in the yellow scarves and, and uh, a lot of the students, the teachers from the charter schools and those that are participating in the ESA program so forth. You guys want to hang around? Love to. We yeah. got Grant Callen and Leah Ferretti in the Element Well Studios talking about education choice in Mississippi. Stay with us. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs> Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. 
find that one. You dug up a little Emerson Lake and Palmer there, huh? Got to have a little ELP every ELP. once in a while. We are back uh, with you in the Element Well Studios on Middays. <clears throat> Our guests are Grant Callen, CEO of Empower Mississippi, and Leah Ferretti, who is uh, a mom who is taking advantage of the education scholarship account, which uh, that program's been in place for seven, eight years now at this point, yeah, right? it passed in 2015. Yeah. All right. So right at the seven, eight-year yep. mark. Any legislation that you're working with those lawmakers on in this session related to school choice and education choice? Yeah, I think there's a number of things that are going to be before lawmakers this year. Uh, we've talked briefly about Representative Larry Bird's bill that would expand the ESA program for kids, explicitly expand it for students with dyslexia. I think yep. that makes a ton of sense. Um, there's also an effort to expand the ESA program to foster kids. So Representative Bill Kincaid up in DeSoto County, um, part of his story is coming through the foster care system. Right. And he has a bill that he's introduced to say – these kids have so many disruptions in their lives, and their moves often from parent to parent, and the having the certainty of knowing where they're going to be at school and not have to be jerked around based on where the parents live just is a no-brainer. Um, and it would also be a way to help, I think, encourage more families to step in and become foster parents if they knew that there was going to be a way to give some continuity for their kids and their education system. Um, so this bill would just expand the current ESA program to kids that are in the foster care system. Yeah. Um, so those are two ESA legislation. There's a number of bills that would make the process to become a charter school more streamlined, more um, easier to do. Um, there's a There's a real challenge right now because of – I know you've talked about and others have the inflated grades – that our public schools and district schools have, um, we went from having 30-something D or F-rated school districts that would have been eligible to open a charter school in those communities to there's 13 now. Hmm. Um, and I wish that – I mean, if, if that were an indication that our, our schools have just jumped tremendously in their performance since COVID, that would be great and worthy of celebration. And there are places where they're growing, but – most of that was an artificial inflation right after COVID because of a, a real drop-off right. and then um, growth in the year following the pandemic. So uh, there's a couple of bills that would address that and try to open up new districts for charter founders to uh, open their school. Um, all of this is about following in this parent-led movement where parents are asking for more options for their kids, whether it's options within the public system that's public-to-public public choice, options like a charter school, options like a magnet school, options for private school, um, for all of the the energy and the talk and the, uh, the work that has been done over the last 15 years to give parents more choice, there's still only about 15 percent of kids in Mississippi that are in a, in a school that's not the one they're zoned for. Yeah. Florida, that's about 48%. Right. Arizona, another. Uh, Louisiana's had a lot of success with charter schools. you got states like New York that uh, initially really went, went gangbusters in, uh, in building out charter schools, forming charter schools, and then you've got uh, anti-charter school government now that's trying to take all that away, strip yeah. all that out. 
How do we get to where Iowa is? I mean, this this is really quite transformational for for Iowa. You got to believe that there are other states, particularly those that are more friendly to education choice, that are watching what's happening there in, in Iowa. Well, I think there's I mean there's two factors. Everywhere you've seen massive school choice transformational change come, you see parents stepping up, speaking out, leading the charge. And you see lawmakers and political leaders responding to those parents and taking courageous actions to make sure parents have what they need. Yeah, That's it. That's the formula. And, you know, I think for a lot of parents, Leah could speak to this, you, you don't think of yourselves as a political activist. You yeah. don't you – don't, you don't hate public schools. You right. don't. You don't. You're not fighting. You don't want to be a political agent. You just want your kids to get a great education. And so we're. But we have to ask parents to step up, lend their voice to this, get engaged because that's the only thing that's going to change this. Leah, I know that you've been a regular at the school choice rallies, and uh, you're serving as the MC, as you informed us uh, tomorrow. I've been as well. I've seen you there. You can't help but be moved when you attend those rallies and you look in at the faces and the eyes of the students and the parents and they they seem so happy so excited so energetic you just gotta feel good about that and and come away feeling yeah this was a good thing for mississippi oh yeah i've got chill bumps right now just talking about it um... i mean you look around and there's in the eyes of other mothers yeah. who can empathize with you because they've been on the same journey as you. I've seen and them cry at the rally. Yeah, I know I, you have, too. I, I, I have cried um, at rallies before. Um, but when it comes to your child, you know, there's no limits. There's no limits. You know, as a parent, you just want what's best for your child. And, um, and that's what's so beautiful about the rally is because we're all coming together for this is good. You know, this is a good thing, and we are thankful, and we are so blessed to be able to live in a state and in a country that we do have choices, right. and we just need more of them. Right. Yeah. And and so I think, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Grant. We try to get folks out of the Capitol to come witness this firsthand. Those that are responsible for advancing the ball here on education choice. I don't see how they could witness it and not be impacted. Well, and they have been impacted. And if you look at – if you take the long view, there, there's no doubt. We wouldn't have charter schools. We wouldn't have an ESA program if it hadn't been for Governor Tate Reeves, if it hadn't been for Speaker Phil Bryant, if it yep. hadn't been for – I'm sorry, uh, former Governor Phil Bryant and Speaker Philip Gunn. Yep. And a host of other lawmakers and, and statewide officials who have fought for these things over the years. Right. Um, I think, if anything, my word of, of caution is we can't rest on our laurels and say we've done school choice because we haven't. Only 15% of the kids are exercising choice today. There's so much more need than there is opportunity. And right. the vast majority of kids today in Mississippi do not – they can't afford to move to better school districts. They can't afford private school tuition. And if you're in that situation and you're not in the, the neighborhood of one of these eight charter schools and you're not special needs, you don't have another option. Yeah. So we've done great things. It's taken a lot of courage from lawmakers to lead on those, but they've done it. And it's had big dividends for families. We just can't stop. And to your point, when you look at around, around the country, this stuff is coming in, I can't tell you whether it's going to be in five years 
or eight years or ten years that we get full um, full education options in Mississippi, but I am utterly convinced it's coming because the future of education looks like dollars following students and parents in the driver's seat, parents controlling where their kids go to school, and parents have an array of options, which makes all the providers more student-centered. It's coming, and we're seeing it around the country. It's coming to Mississippi, too. Yeah, it just feels like that the antithesis to that is protectionism. And and we got to call it what it is, and and that's what it is in my view. I'm happy to say that. Uh, and and again, we got to make the point that this isn't about uh, opposition to public schools. Absolutely never. A, a, a number of the the students and families and schools participating tomorrow will be public schools. Sure. Um, they recognize that. They want public schools to be a great option that parents will choose to go to. Yeah. And the truth is, if you – this is not what we're advocating for, but if you dropped all the district lines and you said kids could go to wherever they wanted, I think the vast majority of students would still want to go to public schools, sure. traditional public Absolutely. schools. Absolutely. Because we have some great public schools. But we can't let the fact that we have some really great, extraordinary, traditional public schools – keep us from recognizing we also have some really troubled, broken traditional public schools that haven't changed in 50 years and aren't going to change. Yeah, And we can we can hold those things in tension. We have great schools, and we have some troubled ones. And the way to, to fix it is to let parents direct their kids to the best setting that works for them. And Leah, you, you made the point earlier before we go here that you, you weren't looking to to eliminate or exit the public schools. You were just yeah. looking for a way to make sure your child got yeah. the necessary education. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that's why you got behind this this movement, yes. this effort. Yes, here I yeah. am. But before we go, can I give a shout-out to my second graders at Indianola sure. Academy? Yep. I told them that Miss Ferretti would say hello to them. So, <laughs> hello, guys. Um, you better behave for your sub today. That's awesome. Grant, Leah, thanks for coming on. Good luck with the school choice rally tomorrow. The time again, Grant? Y'all come out. It's 9 a.m. tomorrow at the Capitol. It's going to be cold. Bundle up. But we'll have a yellow scarf for you when you get there. Should be fun. Grant Callen, Leah Ferretti. Talking about school choice here on Middays. We're stepping aside for a break. Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Back with you in the Element Well Studios, it's Middays on Super Talk Mississippi. So... Before we went to uh, break, well, actually, before we started our interview, I was just talking about this, what to me just looks like a sliver of the population that's just running the whole dang country these days. You made the point a couple of weeks ago. What's sad is that it just seems like so many capitulate. 
They don't stand up and say, no, we're not going to do that. Just freaking get over it. And that, I think, is causing lots of bad outcomes. So now LAPD says displays of the thin blue line flag are banned. We had a Minnesota police officer forced to apologize over the thin blue line flag. We've got a 17-year-old who happens to notice a man in the shower at the YMCA, and she's told by the YMCA, well, just get over it. We've got to accommodate this one freak. you got to get over it. We may have some sound here from the man followed by the 17-year-old. People, entire families were coming up to get their picture taken and to introduce me to their children. And Wood is not done fighting. Huh? She's planning to speak next Wednesday at the Santee City Council meeting. It's important that they finally get to hear the truth and they finally get to put a face on this scary transgender woman who was misgendered. And despite threats of violence, Wood says she's not scared. You know, I, I know how to give an insult out and I know what areas to kick and punch. You know, at least enough to be able to run till I can get to my car and get out of here. And at the meeting, she'll have the support of her Aqua sisters. Uh, my husband and I are thinking about putting some signs together that say we support Chrissy so that we have, you know, the visual. Friendship through thick and thin. Oh, yeah. Towards the end there, I believe, is the 17-year-old rhino. I know that's actually a news report in the area from the local channel where that happened. But the 17-year-old, I think, may be testifying at a city council meeting, if I'm not sure. Very brave young lady. As I was showering after my workout, I saw a naked male in the women's locker room. I immediately went back into the shower, terrified, and hid behind their flimsy excuse for a curtain until he was gone. I was made to feel as though I had done something wrong when I talked to people at the YMCA. Somehow, the indecent exposure of a male to a female minor was an inconvenience to them. Unbelievable. And she goes on to talk about her concerns as the summer approaches with um, bringing her five-year-old sister who also comes to the pool, just to enjoy the pool with their friends and being exposed to this. And they literally told this young lady, 17-year-old, oh, no, this is a full woman. She's been through the transition. Evidently, it didn't appear to be that way physically. This 17-year-old, smart enough to see when a person is carrying the male anatomy, when they're completely naked. How did we get here? Why are we accommodating this one fool that insists on, they're doing it for attention, completely for attention. It's the dopamine crap that you've talked about. And we're letting that drive policy. Now with the why. Police officers can't fly the thin blue line flag, which is just their way of recognizing their brothers and sisters that, in fact, hold the thin blue line. Law enforcement. We've got 
teachers on campuses that are being canceled for teaching math. Because you've got to find the right answer. And some people might not be able to do that. It's math is not subjective. It's very objective. And they're being kicked off campus sometimes, losing their jobs. And now, an activist group in Norway is calling for Aretha Franklin's hit song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, to be removed from Apple Music and Spotify because they've thought they've now deemed the lyrics are offensive to transgenders. This is nuts. This is nuts. 1968. How could they disrespect the Queen of Soul? Who comes up with this? How many people are offended by this? Contrast that to how many people derive enjoyment out of the Queen of Soul's music. They hate fun, though. They hate it. Coming right back here in the Element Well Studios after the news break. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. It's just so much to get to, Rhino. I can't get to all of it. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, necessarily, but i got to share this with you. <laughs> well, according to the text line, we're manufacturing outrage. Oh, we are? Got to love the projection from the left. I miss that. An entire political ideology surrounded by manufactured outrage. Okay. Hmm. Our buddy Jeff on the ceasefire text line. If I was a day trader, I would invest in you guys manufacturing outrage for my new rare things. <laughs> I'm looking for it right now. Uh, okay. Well, what exactly are we manufacturing here? What, uh, what was the outrage that we manufactured? Oh, I see it now. A locker room in Iceland or something? No, actually, if, if you're talking about, I don't know what, the, what is meant by that, but if you're talking about the activists who want to cancel Aretha Franklin's song, I don't know if that's what they're talking about or not, but that's real. That's, that's uh, verifiable, if you'd like to do a little research on it. So college math. Hmm. Peabody College of Education and Human Development at Vanderbilt University says that undergraduate mathematics education is really only appropriate for a white... I'm going to try to pronounce this name, Rhino, or this this word, pardon me, cis-heteropatriarchal space. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck is that? Uh, Normal red-blooded male. Okay. So, I'm looking at somebody, of course, 
is takes a picture of all these crazy events. And there's this professor up there, Louis Levaya, Associate Professor of Mathematics Education at this Peabody College at Vanderbilt. And I'm looking at, he's at the podium, and behind him, of course, is his slideshow. And that's what it says, undergraduate mathematics education as a white, cis-heteropatriarchal space and opportunities for disruption to advanced queer of, what? Advanced queer of color justice. That's, that's the title of the presentation. Oh, you standing room only for that one. This is unbelievable. So you're right, it's a term... Is this cis-heteropatriarchal? <laughs> That's a term in ethnic studies referring to a system of male straight conforming to assigned sex system power. Normal red-blooded male. Right. So once again, I, I'm pretty sure that accounts for the vast majority of the male population. And by male, I'm referring to that sex which one took at birth biologically. So Professor Levi's findings in this presentation depicted how black Latin asterisk <laughs> because now that you've seen this, the Hispanic community is blasting the leftists for this hijacking, this making up this Latinx term, which they abhor and f- find more offensive, just call it la- Latino. They're cool with that. Poll after poll shows that. Overwhelming majorities. But the left knows better than them. Ah, I see. The left has all the answers. <laughs> Unbelievable. So the findings depicted in the presentation, how black, Latin, asterisk, fill in the blank, and Asian, queer, and transgender students' narratives of experience reflect forms of intersectionality or instances of oppression and resistance. That's according to the lecture's abstract. Certainly is abstract. It's very <laughs> abstract. And I, I just share this because, once again, how many people are in this category? And, and it's not to say that they don't deserve equal opportunity, what they they do under the law, regardless of their physical immutable characteristics, their, their sexual orientation, or however the heck they identify themselves. That's irrelevant. You're still protected. What you're not entitled to are special accommodations. You're not entitled to, to infringe on me to accommodate you. You're not entitled to say, oh, we can't teach math as a very objective science because, well, that might offend certain people. You're not entitled to withhold national merit awards because everybody didn't get one. You're not entitled to deprive those who did earn it. That's the, that's the point here. But this is the old... What's the metaphor? The tail wagging the dog? Yep. That's what it sounds like to me. 
except the dog is gigantic and the tail is, you, you can't see it on a microscope in this instance, in all these situations. This, uh, this is crazy, in, in my view. And so it kind of dovetails into some guests we have coming up on the program uh, next. And uh, that is Matt Sharp, the Senior Counsel and State Government Relations National Director for the Alliance of Defending Freedom. And we're going to be talking about the preservation of Title IX and, and gender treatment of minors. We discussed some bills that have been introduced, uh, at least in the Senate thus far, that address those issues. We'll, we'll get into that. On the C Spire text line, Kirk from Columbus says, I love your show, but sometimes I have to take a break from it. If not, I walk around all day mad about all the stupidity in this world that you point out. You do too good of a job sometimes telling the truth. Well, Kirk, first, I I apologize for getting you riled up. I get riled up, and I do because I care. And I hope that that comes through. And I hope that resonates. And I really do try to be careful, best I can, not to make it personal, not to attack people personally, and to fix all kinds of pejoratives and labels to them. But this march to mediocrity should concern all of us, and we need to be aware of instances in which it is occurring because they are widespread and it and it comes from the top. That's that's part of the problem. It comes from the top. You wouldn't think this would be an issue in a place like Vanderbilt. You typically think about Vanderbilt and and some of these prestigious universities as as havens for excellence. Excellence. When do we get to a point where it is considered abnormal to reward excellence, and we're trying to normalize mediocrity. That ain't no way to go through life. Isn't that what Dean Wormer told Belushi? What'd he say? Fat, dumb, and stupid, or something like that? Drunk? I don't remember the exact quote, but it caught, makes me call that to mind. That's no way to go through life, son. Well, even the vice president of these United States. She seems to have forgotten key parts of the Declaration. Well, it's because it's inconvenient. Ah, well, it seems like all of those efforts are about inconvenience. But she, uh, again, she got a little confused. We might have some sound. You got that for us? We don't have any? Okay. Have you seen this, what I'm talking about? She, um... <laughs> yeah, let's see if I got something here. But uh, I'll go ahead and share it with you. She really, of course, is a staunch proponent of choice. And the other day, in a, in the other day in a speech she was making... Here we go, I found it. Okay. We collectively believe and know America is a promise. America is a promise. It is a promise of freedom and liberty. Not for some, but for all. A promise we made in the Declaration of Independence. 
that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh oh, she left something out there, didn't she? Pretty sure that all starts with life. Huh. And then liberty, and then the pursuit of happiness. Ah, so life is not an unalienable right, according to our vice president. Well, that's comforting, isn't it? We're coming right back with Matt Sharp from the Alliance of Defending Freedom. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Onto the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi uh, joining us now is michael artigues a board certified pediatrician who practices in macomb mississippi has been doing so for 27 years and currently serves as the president of the american college of pediatricians michael thanks for calling in yes sir i hope you can hear me the weather's not great on the road here and i hope not to be dropped yeah we we got you. So we uh, we wanted to talk to you about uh, some legislation that has been introduced in the state Senate concerning gender-affirming treatment for minors in the state of Mississippi. I believe there are three bills that have been introduced. What, what do you know about that, and, and what, in general, what do you think about what seems to be gaining a great deal of attention and traction in this country, and that's performing this surgery, these surgery, these gender transition surgeries on minors. Right. Um, well, I, I'm not familiar with all the bills and all the detail. I do know that, like you said, um, some of them are looking to address specifically minors, um, and it's a group that uh, is really where most of the controversy is. Uh, you know, the, the studies that they're basing treatment on uh, right now are, are extremely flimsy and really don't reach the standard of care that we're used to in medicine. And, and with some things, maybe that wouldn't be as, as a huge of an issue uh, if the outcomes weren't uh, potentially uh, so bad. Uh, but we know that with some of the medications, and certainly surgeries uh, that are performed. We're talking about life-altering uh, conditions. Uh, we're talking about permanent sterilization, uh, things that you just can't step back from. And so uh, we know that other nations and medical societies in those nations have done just that, and they're by no means conservative places. 
uh, these are, are countries and, and nations that have realized, though, that we don't have enough evidence to continue to move forward in that direction with anything other than uh, intensive uh, mental health for these patients. Uh, and I think at this point, that's what we're really asking for, hoping for, uh, that we can have some common sense uh, changes, and it starts in our home state. Do you think that what's being proposed, which I believe includes the revocation of a, of a licensed health care provider's credentials, is appropriate if, in fact, they do perform this uh, gender-affirming, these various treatments on a minor, specifically on a minor? It, do you think that's appropriate? And I, I couldn't hear all of what you said. Was it something about... A license, loss of licensure for, for physicians? Yeah, I think one of the bills that's being proposed would, in fact, uh, revoke a physician's license if they um, perform gender treatment on a minor. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, again, while it's not uh, something that I'm, I'm proposing personally, or our, our particular organization uh, doesn't have recommendations as for how uh, states are to um, hopefully and keep these uh, laws that they're they're trying to pass uh, in, in, in active and and to, to regulate it. I understand uh, that you you have to you have to put some some power behind these uh, measures if it's going to have effect. Um, and I think that we're talking a very small minority, of course, of physicians uh, certainly in this state, but even in other states as well, I believe, uh, who are are treating kids like this. Right. Uh, but again. It has to pack a punch, I guess, in the end, and, and however they feel like, that in, if indeed the, the medical boards have other recommendations for it, I'd leave that up to them. But I, I certainly understand they had to put some teeth behind their measure. Have you ever um, treated and seen any pediatric patients in your practice that have either discussed that they maybe experience gender dysphoria, and maybe they and their parents are considering gender transition, or any that have, in fact, completed uh, the process? Well, it's interesting enough. Uh, until recently, I would have probably said no, um, other than to maybe have heard of some patients who, as adults, uh, had uh, perhaps those particular inclinations and, and uh, mental health issues. Yeah. But none up until, like I said, recently where I had a, a child who felt like uh, that was their condition. Uh, the interesting thing is, when I asked uh, how it is they felt like they came about with that uh, particular term, they used the term transgender, um, he said uh, Yahoo videos, uh, sorry, uh, YouTube videos. Um, and, and now I'm not making a diagnosis one way or the other as far sure. as, uh, in this case, uh, whether or not this child has a legitimate case of, of gender dysphoria. It, it is really for, I think, the mental health uh, clinicians to, to handle that, and that's indeed what I did is refer this child on. Of course, the family uh, that was involved was, was uh, like anyone would you imagine, was, was very distraught. This is yeah. be the case with anyone who's dealing with a child with significant mental health issues. And, and you know, a majority of the kids who have particularly gender dysphoria, uh, they tend to have other mental health issues as well, diagnosable issues like uh, depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. So again, it usually doesn't go uh, all, all alone, and so that's why I think uh, what I did, what hopefully uh, most pediatricians or physicians would do, is is refer them to a mental health expert who can help them uh, with this particular issue. Sure, Matt Sharp, Senior Counsel and State Government Relations National Director. 
for the Alliance Defending Freedom has also joined us in the uh, Element Well Studios. Matt, welcome. Thanks. We were just talking to uh, Dr. Artigues about what what seems to be uh, a rather large increase, significant increase in minors undergoing this gender transition surgery. I've actually, Matt, uh, seen a map that shows uh, medical institutions, healthcare institutions, mainly the the those affiliated with the uh, medical schools, education affiliated institutions, seen a map of uh, like a short five years ago the number of those institutions where you could receive these this gender affirming care relative to today. It's like a dramatic increase. I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's like a handful, I believe, you could count on one hand to virtually every state now. Yeah, I, I've seen some of that same data, talking about the explosion that we've seen with gender dysphoria, especially, as you mentioned, with young kids, and many raising concern that there's a, a social contagion element to this. They've talked specifically about when it comes to young high school girls, um, that you'll see sort of it, it cluster, that one girl in a school will begin to identify as gender uh transgender, and then it spreads. And these young girls, rather than trying to diagnose like the doctor was talking about, working on any psychological issues, the depression, anxiety, they're immediately being put on this one-way path by these gender clinics that have exploded and that have a real financial interest in pushing kids down this path as well. And so they're pushing kids down this path towards irreversible harm, towards sterility, towards so many other lifelong consequences. And I think that's why it's encouraging to see Mississippi and other states take up this issue and to say, what can we do to protect our minors from these harms? Yeah, and I've actually seen, we've, we shared some video, some sound here on the program, was it so long ago that uh, Vanderbilt was conducting, you, I'm sure you're well familiar with this, a seminar, it appeared to me to be conducted by the director of their, their center that offers this uh, gender care, as they call it, gender-affirming care to minors, and addressing other physicians and health care providers. And they, plain as day, as part of the presentation, she discusses how lucrative this is for the university because it not only is a very expensive undertaking, the, the one-time surgery, but you need care for life, specialized care, drugs, etc., for life, because you're sort of going against nature here, honestly. And they, they discuss, yeah, this is a pretty good thing. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the Tennessee legislature, if it, if it weren't uh, the governor, uh, has, has put kind of a halt on that at Vanderbilt. Is that well, your understanding as well? They've slowed it down, done something. Yeah, I know that there's been a, a big outcry about that. Um, not only that Vanderbilt openly admitted they were doing this on children for financial motives, but even threatening doctors that dared to speak contrary, that dared to warn to say, wait a second, maybe we ought to take a step back from pushing kids towards mm. these medical, radical medical interventions. And so, yes, I do know there has been efforts in Tennessee, um, and I think believe they're also looking at legislation like Mississippi to protect kids in their state. Yeah, we're up against a break right here. If you guys can hang around, uh, we'll get to more of this and also talk about some of the Title IX issues that uh, need to be addressed as well. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us.
Mornings with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays in the Element Well Studios. Matt Sharp, Alliance Defending Freedom, and Dr. Michael Artigues, a practicing pediatrician, are our guests. So we've been talking about this radical gender ideology that is absolutely sweeping uh, the country, and it's it's taking hold, and it, it is uh, being injected, it seems like, into every aspect of life, of society, uh, Matt. It's not just sort of reserved for the, ed, the higher ed community where they maybe contemplate issues like this, you discuss them. No, it's more than that. It's extended into the private sector. It's extended into government. And uh, Rhino, our producer here, made the point a couple of weeks ago that it's just a small fragment of the population that seems to be driving every aspect of life. Uh, policy, law, societal norms, they're all accommodating a sliver of the population. They're entitled to some degree the same opportunities, of course, that we all have. They're not entitled to special accommodations, especially if that infringes on others. That's exactly right. I'll give an example. Anchorage, Alaska, there's a women's shelter there, Downtown Hope Center, that specifically worked with women that were fleeing sexual trafficking and abuse. Uh, But the city there told them that they would have to allow a man to come in and sleep in that shelter, a, a place where he was literally sleeping three feet away from some of the other women. There are plenty of other opportunities, plenty of other shelters, but they've got a duty to protect those women, not to undermine their safety, their mental and emotional health. But that's exactly what this ideology does when it's being forced on these organizations that are simply trying to help women and children. Dr. Artigues, is is there perhaps a debate uh, in the medical community uh, about whether or not this is, in fact, a, a, a mental issue, or is it a physical issue, or is it just a preference? Because there doesn't seem to be consensus that if a, a youngster in particular just begins to exhibit the potential of gender dysphoria, that maybe what they need is, is care to chase the cobwebs out of their brain more than they knew to go get surgery to mutilate their bodies. You know, I don't think there's any real debate that there's a that it's a mental health issue. That the debate, of course, is in what's the proper treatment. And uh, the, the the frightening thing here is that the majority of these kids, the vast majority, I'd say, eighty to ninety percent of them, when allowed to go through puberty, when allowed to, to to reach that that stage of their life, and to go through those changes, actually no longer have this deep seated incongruence with their biological sex, which makes you have to really pause as to why we would stop puberty in these kids uh, who, once you do that, uh, no longer have those natural uh, changes. And unfortunately, it, it ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they end up moving on uh, towards uh, full uh, wrong sex uh, hormone therapies, and, and et cetera. You know, it, it, it's, 
I don't think it's so much controversial about the fact it's a mental health issue. The, the controversy is in how you treat it, and it seems uh, like more and more nations, like you said, uh, others are looking at it. Uh, they're they're debating and they're deciding that no, we need to put a pause on uh, any surgery, even uh, hormones, right now for these kids. Uh, they need to, they need mental health, and and they need it uh, um, more than anybody. Yeah. So I've even seen situations where where schools are educating their teachers, their staff on uh, gender, this whole gender ideology situation, but more importantly, um, the opportunity to recommend, and, and they're, they're encouraging these teachers to recommend puberty blockers to youngsters, I mean in elementary school. Oh, I saw you doing something one day that looks like you might be thinking about uh, transitioning genders here. You know, you can take these puberty blockers, and then you can make that decision somewhere down the line. They're even teaching them that gender is something that adults made up. There really aren't two binary uh, genders. That It's whatever adults make up. You can be whatever you want. I mean, is this dangerous, uh, Dr. Ortiz? Well, that's the problem. It's, it's, it's something that is very subjective. Uh, there's not a test, uh, a blood test, so to speak, uh, that you're going to determine these particular conditions. It's it's a it's a child uh, who's who's coming forth saying I've got this particular problem. So that's that's right there inherent with with uh, with fraught with the possibility of of error. Uh, we've already in this uh, country decided that for right reasons because the, the brain is not fully developed that that the minors can't do some things that adults can do. Sure, uh, they they can't drive at certain ages or drink or vote or serve the the, the armed services whatever it is. And, and that's because those, those frontal lobes have not fully developed. They're not able to make the same rational decisions. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that we're taking something that is so subjective like this and, uh, and making some permanent, potentially permanent uh, changes uh, to minors. Uh, again, we don't take a stand on whether or not adults have the right to do that. We just need to be a lot more cautious with our children. Especially something that is so permanent in nature. And gosh, it, it, it doesn't uh, take much, uh, much investigation to find case after case of adults who went through this as, as youngsters, uh, pre-pubescent, and then had this radical surgery or, or, or pursued and took puberty blockers. And now they totally regret it. But more importantly, uh, they have health problems for the rest of their lives. You know, we, we had, a, ironically, years ago when this, this became a little bit more of an issue and the, and the College of Pediatricians was, uh, was asked to, uh, to address it, uh, I had kind of a, as politics to make strange bedfellows, uh, this particular issue did as well. We had a, an organization of, I guess the, the term would be militant, uh, feminist militant lesbians, actually, who had come out and said that we're, we're with you on this issue because uh, quite often um, they felt like that was them as a young child. Uh, and they were frightened that what's going to happen with those girls uh, who, like, like was, was mentioned before, through a, a, what seems to be pretty obviously a social contagion, such an exponential increase in the numbers here lately, uh, they're going to undergo some surgeries and, and treatments that uh, would not have happened otherwise. And these women said, uh, that's uh, what would have happened to us if, uh, if they were allowed to do it. So, again, it, it doesn't take... Everyone on the same political spectrum, even to see that this is the problem. Yeah. Um, there's a great YouTube video of Bill Maher, who no one I necessarily uh, uh, support in many of his uh, of his uh, speeches and, and positions. But when he talked about this uh, transgender issue, 
Uh, he had a lot of common sense, and it's hard for the left to ignore that. Yeah, totally true. So, Matt, just to be clear, we're talking specifically here, in ter- and certainly in terms of legislation that our uh, our legislature is is deliberating, is considering about minors. Once someone is an adult, they've passed a minor age, if they want to go mutilate their bodies, as far as I'm concerned, that's up to you. You're, you're on your own. You're an adult. You make those decisions. You live with the consequences. But as Dr. Ortiz points out, when, you, when you're a minor, you don't quite have the intellect to make those kinds of decisions, and, and society needs to protect them. That's exactly right. Look at our laws. There's a lot of things that the legislature said minors do not have the capacity to consent to, whether it's voting, whether it's buying alcohol, whether it's signing a contract, getting a tattoo, because we know those have consequences, and children cannot grasp that. And now when we're starting to talk about these hormones, these surgeries, that not only the sterility, not only the ability to never have a child of your own, but the heart issues, the liver issues, the the damage it does to bones, no child can understand this. And so it is very appropriate for the legislature to step in and say, this is one of those many things that we have a duty to protect the children in our state from, to make sure that they're not being coerced or pushed by these financially motivated gender clinics to undergo these, that they're not being pushed by school officials who, like we talked about, are pushing kids down this path. And that's why it's appropriate for the state to step in and take steps to protect minors here in Mississippi. It's it's a dang scam is what it is. Uh, I'm just going to call it that. But, But more importantly, our youth, our children, our most precious asset, we're harming them by allowing this to occur. We're harming them. So this this would be like uh, a business going out uh, to their their stock room and putting a sledgehammer to their inventory. I mean that is their that's their asset. That's how they sustain. We need our children to be fully formed, fully functioning, have all their faculties to keep society progressing. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's why when you look at the states that are looking at this, that's what they're motivated by, of what can we do to protect the next generation from these harmful, irreversible procedures. Gosh, it's just it's just incredible. And, and if you say anything or speak up about it, good grief, they want to send you to the guillotine. Yeah. We, we've got a case, uh, Dr. Alan Josephson. He's a professor at uh, Louisville University of Louisville. And several years ago, he spoke out at an event at Heritage Foundation. I was actually on the panel with him, raising the alarms about this. Next thing you know, his job is at risk. That is unbelievable. No person should lose their, their source of income, their employment, their livelihood, simply because they stood up for children in this particular case. Uh, Matt and Dr. Artigues, thanks so much for joining us. you got an event today, right? Tell us about that real quick. That's we right. Go. I have a rally here in a couple of hours. Uh, lots of people coming out to support legislatures as they're looking to protect women and children from the harms of gender ideology. It's at the Mississippi Trademark, right? That's right. Appreciate you guys joining us, and thanks for your efforts on this very important issue. Appreciate it. See you guys. Thanks. Coming right back on Midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi.
I just want you to know this is not a white cis heteropatriarchal space. <laughs> I don't know. Whoever wrote that down would probably argue otherwise. <laughs> because we're just normal red blooded American males. Is that why you think? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, but I, I tend to celebrate when I get the right answer in math. Is that wrong? Is that racist on my part? Obviously. <laughs> How have you somebody? not learned? 2023. <laughs> Gary in the Berg says, hey, I know Dr. Artigues. He is an excellent, in all caps, pediatrician and a great guy. Glad you had him on. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. Uh, first time I've ever visited with a doctor, but it sure seems that way to me as well. Children can't consent to sex, so why should they be able to do that on the ceasefire text line? They shouldn't, obviously. And the, the case for it, to prohibit it, is compelling, overwhelming. And what's interesting is that even folks in the LGBTQ community will say, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, they're, they're activists within their community that have spoken out because they see the risk of this nonsense on kids. But it is true. I, I don't know if you guys have seen the map side by side. The number of gender-affirming care clinics in the United States a short five years ago is dots on a map of the U.S. And then look at the, the same map today with the dots. It's incredible, including right here in Mississippi, right, at the uh, UMC. Well, you see a lot of the infighting in the LGBTQ community because you have some members of the community that are much younger than others, some that know much less of the history of the community than others. The ones that have been around long enough or the ones that have studied the history of that community long enough understand that that community has overcome a great deal of stereotyping involving the grooming of minors and pedophilia. Yeah. And they don't want to go back to the time where everyone thought anybody within the LGBTQ community was a pedophile. Unbelievable. Well, uh, I mean, they already, of course, are on a crusade to totally normalize pedophilia. You've seen Governor Gavin Newsom of the Golden State of California, a.k.a. the Golden Boy, <laughs> his wife. And some of the crazy materials and videos she's produced that are being shown in the public schools out there? Why can't we let kids just be kids? You only get to do it once. Just leave them alone. But that's, um, that's kind of embedded in Marxist ideology, isn't it? That if you can control the minds of children and, and groom them, as it is said indoctrinate them at a young age, you got it. You own it. You own society. You get your way. Is anybody else bothered by the fact that the vice president conveniently left out the word life in reciting the declaration there? I mean, the, the basis upon which, honestly, our government, our system, our society in this country is founded, she left that out? To appease to baby killers? Is that what it was? That's just disturbing. And and the left is okay with that, apparently. They're okay. As long as it protects what they have deemed are reproductive rights. Oh gosh. Man oh man. Up to and including infanticide. 
Yeah, seems like it. Well, we discussed last week the bill that, that uh, of course, passed in the House, but was supported by, uh, pardon me, opposed, opposed by Democrats, and that would essentially require a physician to care for a baby that was born after a failed abortion. How could you vote against that? What happened to the Hippocratic Oath? What happened to the do no harm? What happened to all those principles of medicine? What happened to that? That's out the window when it comes to abortion, it seems. It's incredible. On the C Spire text line, Rhett and Ridgeland says, I taught high school at a private Christian school in the California desert. In 2006 to 2008, I had a student who was experiencing gender dysphoria. His mother would give him her, him, her estrogen pills. We had to suspend him after we caught him in the elementary girls' bathroom for the second time. It's my understanding that the high school girls were okay with him using their bathroom. Well, that's weird, too. Jeez. That just seems weird. She also left out the word of the word God. Um, Mike and Brookhaven says that. I don't think the word God is in that statement. It's creator. Yeah, endowed by our creator. Creator. Which is assumed, of course, presumed to be God. And as I recall, creator is capitalized because it's a word that represents God, which is capitalized. We'd have to listen to it again. Did she say, did she leave out creator? She did? Okay. So the rights come from her and Joe Biden, government. The whole point of that statement. She totally missed. No. These are unalienable. You got that part wrong, toots. Coming right back on Middays. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. The afternoon portion of Middays here in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi, Gerard and Rhino at the controls. So, okay. Among other items of interest with respect to this small fragment of the population dictating the lives of the rest of us, Mount Rushmore. They want to tear it down, and for the third consecutive year, the Biden administration has rejected the request to shoot them fireworks on July 4th, which has been a tradition, a perennial tradition, but nope. First it was the COVID. Now, I think it's just, I guess it's offensive that we're celebrating our independence and our freedom at this monument to some of our notable presidents. Yes, we can't do that anymore, right? 
And it would be one thing if it were to, say, save money. And Okay, the money they were going to spend on the fireworks display is now going to a fund so that they can complete the Crazy Horse Monument. <laughs> there you go. But no, it's but that's just not kinda, it. No, it's just for virtue signaling. So George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. That's whose likeness is sculpted into the stone there at Mount Rushmore. I, what's the problem here? They hate fun. So there are some who believe that, or at least they say, that Native Americans claim that the monument was built on sacred land in the Black Hills that was taken from them once gold was discovered there. They said that uh, at least one of the opponents says that Mount Rushmore is a, quote, symbol of ethnic cleansing, forced assimilation, and the theft of our territory. Man. Mm, mm, mm. I literally saw and read... I don't have all the details in front of me. I'll get it for another show. And a writer for the Boston Globe. I've told you before, of all the newspapers that I consume, by far that's the most left-wing. But this op-ed writer was writing in favor of making the case for California's reparations plan. You remember us talking about that? There's a plan at the state level. I think that's 233000 as I recall, per black person in the state. There's some eligibility and qualifications for it. But in San Francisco, they've said, hold my beer, here's $5 million per head. And then 97000 they put a little icing on the cake with 97000 a year. Well, it's a, a stipend to bring the median income up to 97000 okay. a year I got you. for the next 250 years. I misread it. So it's all about achieving equity at a cost of some $50 billion. Well, this particular opinion writer at the Boston Globe is making the case for it, for those reparations, and justifying it on the basis of reparations paid after World War II to the Jewish population from Germany as a result of the Holocaust. And i got to tell you, I wasn't even familiar with, with that until I read through that article and did a, a little bit more research on it. But that's what they're hanging their hat on here. That's their rationale for supporting this. And I think you're going to see a whole lot more of this. Former NBA player Jalen Rose called on people to retire the term Mount Rushmore because the monument sits on land that was stolen when it was discovered that it contained gold. Well, couldn't you make that case for the whole dang country, essentially? And that's just looking at it in the viewpoint of a few hundred years. True. The farther back you go, the more confusing it's going to get. Yeah, no doubt about it. Because all land is conquered land. Uh, across the planet. Oh, yeah. It just depends on how far back you want to go to find your starting point. So, uh, what do we do? Just put a gun to our heads or what? 
go jump in the ocean? What do we do here? I mean, we can't change any of that at this point. Does that mean we just have to cancel everything? Can't shoot fireworks on July 4th? Like, who's that hurting? And if you're still, I guess, offended, and I'm not certainly not condoning or justifying that action, I just can't do anything about it. I just can't. And I don't see how canceling a fireworks show addresses that. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't solve any problem. I mean, you feel better, I guess? Oh, well, look, we got the fireworks show canceled. I mean, does that improve the quality of your life somehow? When do we ever, when do we ever have that discussion about just what do we do to make life better? I just don't see how shooting fireworks at Mount Rushmore, which does provide a great deal of enjoyment to a whole lot of people, how somehow that harms others. I, I fail to get that. It's not like when those who are in attendance are enjoying the display are having a rally for the confiscation of this land. I don't think they're thinking about that. Most people don't even know. And likely couldn't tell you the history of the faces etched into the stone there. Don't know anything about them either. Don't really care. They're just trying to have a good time watching fireworks. Gosh. And I'm pretty sure that when humans have enjoyable experiences like that, that excite in a positive way the human senses, they tend to be more productive humans. <laughs> yeah, but productivity is racist, remember? Ah, that's right. Hard work. Being punctual. Yeah, I remember that. Rugged individualism. Those are all tenets of white supremacy. We can't do that. Getting the answers right. Achieving high marks on test scores and receiving awards. Can't do that. We might offend somebody. That's just stuff. Europeans, isn't that what they say? That made up. White Europeans made all that stuff up. We got a request here from William and Cortland that you bump us with a natural woman now that we've learned that some transgender activist group wants to cancel the song. Good grief. I had a text here that I uh, wanted to read. It was from KC and Ocean Springs. Yeah. Mississippi law requires school counselors follow the National Association of School Counselors Code of Ethics. Now, I believe, Casey, that you either are still on the school board, or I know you have been in the past. Let me know on that. So you do have some uh, degree of familiarity with this issue. goes on to say, that code of ethics directs high school counselors to not notify parents when students confide in the counselors that they would like to transition to a different gender. The requirement to follow the National Association needs to be removed from Mississippi law. Parents should always know what is going on with their children. Senator Angela Hill's bill removes that requirement. I think she as well has a history as an educator. Thank you, Senator Hill. Please contact the Senate Education Committee members and tell them that you support SB 
2058. Casey confirmed she's on the school board. Yeah, Robert and Clinton let us know, thank you, Casey, that Creator was, in fact, omitted from Kamala. I, I picked up on the life, didn't even notice that. That's all, of course. I mean, what do they think they're doing when they, when they intentionally, deliberately omit words like that? I mean, what? Again, how is that helping? How does that improve the quality of life? It doesn't. We run the country with virtue signaling. What's your policy? Virtue signaling. What do you believe in? Virtue signaling. Accommodating a fraction of the population. The hell with everybody else. I'm better than you. That pompous, arrogant, condescending, sanctimonious attitude, it's disgusting, honestly. It's obnoxious. It's, it's nauseating. it's a streak a mile wide up the back of every leftist, liberal, or Democrat. I can't stand it. I really can't. They still need to consider the unintended consequences. I'm not for gender reassignment, says Thomas in Greenwood. Even with parental consent, should the state have that power over parents? Yeah, they should, in my view, uh, Thomas, because it is incumbent upon the state to protect in that case. Coming right back on Middays. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Queen of Soul, the natural woman. I just want you to know if there are folks out there listening that are offended by it, I don't care. Get over it. <laughs> Gosh, dog. But it's feelings. <laughs> I I happen to enjoy it, by the way. A very distinctive and high quality voice. Before Auto Tune, 1968. That's pretty dang good. Oh, gosh. So, on the ceasefire tax line, Paula Meridian, I'm kind of confused on botched abortion law. If the child has been mutilated but still is alive, would it not be more humane to go ahead and end the life? I'm just not clear on what extent of a failed abortion we're talking about. You know, I haven't dug into that level of detail, but... What it requires is that if the if the baby is in fact born alive, that a healthcare provider at the um, in the OR with the mother and the child is required to preserve the life of the infant 
it's a it's a fairly rare case, obviously rare situation where that occurs. It's not even going to get taken up, of course, in the Democratic-controlled Senate. Opponents say that such measures restrict abortion access by threatening health care providers. Well, that's because you're allowing it all the way through the gestation period, on demand. That's what leads to this situation, honestly. It's already, of course, considered homicide in the U.S. to intentionally kill an infant that is born alive, but I think that's different than requiring the doctor, the healthcare professionals uh, at the delivery, I guess what was scheduled to be an abortion, to use all their skills and tools to keep the baby alive. And these are complex ethical questions, but that's what happens when you continue to push the envelope on abortion. These sorts of situations arise. Hmm. Pro-Choice America released a statement about the bill, said these bills make it plain. House Republicans are patently rejecting the will of the overwhelming majority of Americans who supported who voted, pardon me, to support legal abortion in November, of course, referring to the rather lackluster performance by Republicans in the midterms. Many political pundits credit that to the Dobbs case and to the, the abortion and the pro-life positions in the Republican Party. Meanwhile, our Democratic reproductive freedom champions in the House are ready and willing to fight to restore and expand access to abortion, and we thank them for that. Hmm. So, of course, there have been some attacks on pro-life facilities. They're kind of a militant bunch, aren't they? It's, you will believe what we believe, or you will pay the price. Yeah. Real inclusive of them. <laughs> Paul says, affirmative action is more than paid back their reparations. Heck, it's not just that, Paul. I've discussed this on the program. In in contracting and hiring and promotion, I mean, it, it's um, been introduced and invaded absolutely every aspect of life. College admissions. Gosh, you, you just name it. There's preferential treatment given to minorities, big time. It's not even in question. Some cases, it's required. It's required. Bonuses paid to managers and at American Express and other companies for their their um, promotion and recommendation for salaries and bonuses to their staff, to their team that they manage based on their immutable physical characteristics, not performance, not value proposition. By the way, Bernie Sanders speaking of that. So we got this debt ceiling deal going on. You guys know about that. There's setting up for a showdown up there in Washington. He wants you to know, does the self-avowed socialist that he will be reintroducing his bill to extend Social Security's solvency for the next 75 years and expand benefits by 2400 a year. How? By scrapping the cap. 
I'm reading from his Twitter. Today, a billionaire pays the same amount into Social Security as someone making $160,000 a year. Let's end that absurdity. So what, of course, Bernie proposes, what he advocates, is that the more financially successful in society pay for the retirement for the least financially successful. That's what's happening now, honestly. You pay a ton into Social Security if your income exceeds the present $160,000 a year threshold after which there is no Social Security tax levied, but your benefits are capped. You reach, you can keep paying in all you want, and they can keep collecting from folks with, with uh, wages above that figure, but when it comes to retire, your benefits are capped. It's about 3600 bucks, I think, presently is as much as you can get. So, under Bernie's plan, you may make a million dollars a year for years and pay the full Social Security rate of, I think it's, what, 6.5%, if I'm not mistaken. The employee share, the employer matches that. You pay that into Social Security fund. But when you get ready to retire, you don't get higher retirement. No, you help the guy next to you they made $50,000 a year. And that's considered fair. In the world of Bernie Sanders, that's equitable. That's fair. Why? You made more money. You got to pay for your neighbor's retirement. Oh, and their health care through Medicare as well. You got to pay that. That's what he's saying. Bernie to the rescue. Robert Reich, as Rush used to say. He's so clever, Rhino. He tweeted yesterday, the federal minimum wage in, and he shows in columnar format the years in the first column, uh, the years from 2009 extending to 2022, forming rows showing the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in each of those years, which has been 725. He's correct. The federal minimum wage has not increased since 2009. He's right, and he says, the result is now worth 41% less than today than it was in 1968. Well, what he fails to acknowledge, it's just a, a, you know, just a little tidbit of information here, is that the vast majority of the states have increased their required minimum wage. Mississippi has not. It still adheres to the federal minimum wage. But what's even more important is that very few people in this country are paid the federal minimum wage. Very few people make less than $15 an hour. We've actually increased that, uh, the average pay, quite a bit. Now, it is true that 52 million or so U.S. workers, about 30% of the country's workforce, earn less than that. But with respect to the, the minimum wage itself, which has been around uh, fixed at 725 since 2009 at the federal level, there are really just very few people that actually make that. Most of them are young aren't supporting families. That's what the left wants you to believe, is that 
These are people making minimum wage that are trying to support their family on that. And that's just not true. It's completely untrue. It's mostly, overwhelmingly, people between the age ages of 16 to 24. And the last time I looked at this is less than 2% of hourly workers in this country actually make the minimum wage. It's This is not the issue that they make it out to be. And what we should be focusing on are policies that help everybody at the lower end of the income spectrum move up. Not just force employers to say, you got to pay them more money or else. Coming right back here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. Fat, drunk, and stupid is what Dean Wormer said. <laughs> no way to go through life. <laughs> uh, feels like the liberals are forcing us down that path. Fat, drunk, and stupid. I guess it's high these days. Didn't Bluto wind up being a senator, though? Yeah, the, in the, that's right. In the, in the parade at the end of the movie, U.S. Senator, he's waving from his car. Uh, Blutarski, John Bluto Blutarski. Food fight! That's awesome. Oh, gosh, just looking at uh, more of these tweets from Robert Reich and Bonnie Sanders. What do you say, Rhino? I'm Bernie Sanders. Give me all your money. <laughs> he is uh, He's after them CEOs today as well. In the 1950s, CEOs were paid 20x more than the average worker. In the 1980s, CEOs were paid 59 times more. In 2009, they were paid 180 times more. And today, they're paid 399 times more. Great. Go CEOs, is what I say. You know, it's Bernie Sanders and Robert Reich whose heads and souls are filled with greed. They like to point the fingers at others. And hubris by believing that they could more effectively manage a $20 trillion economy than markets. That's greed. That's delusional. I'm going to tell you what you're going to make, how much you're going to make of it, who you're going to hire, what you're going to pay them, what job they're going to do. I know how to do that. 
I'm all-powerful. I'm omnipotent. That's what they want. They're also, let's be honest, they're prodigiously envious and resentful and jealous. They are, because they're losers. It kills them that other people who aren't as widely known as they are, they have the fame of name recognition, but they're not billionaires. Sorry, you didn't produce any value for society. You didn't serve your fellow man. That's what produces wealth. They simply can't understand that. What do you want to do? Control the CEO pay? Sure they do. Why don't they ever talk about artists, performing artists, various disciplines, various trades, or athletes? You know, we've talked about that. Why doesn't that ever come up? That's okay. It's always CEOs. They always got to focus on that. I don't know. What does Lionel Messi make relative to the person who lines the field off there? I'd like I would to venture to say a good bit more than 300x. I think so. But they go unscathed in Sanders' mind. He, he's a loser. There's no two ways about it. In the state of Mississippi, a recent poll shows that more folks favor the grocery tax cut, a grocery tax cut, than an income tax cut. Interesting. Now, this poll, I'm trying to figure out who conducted it. This is, of course, coming from the left. Yeah, a Siena College poll. Do you support or oppose suspending the Mississippi grocery tax? Well, you know, that doesn't really, I don't believe, indicate preference of one over the other. Maybe there's another question in the poll. Oh, yeah, here's the other question. So, Republicans uh, support or oppose eliminating the state personal income tax. Well, see, that's the problem is they're, they ask the question separately. Well, Republicans overwhelmingly support both. Democrats, 50-50. 42% of Democrats support eliminating the personal income tax in the state of Mississippi, 41% oppose it. 16% don't know, no opinion. Grocery tax, Republicans, 71% support or uh, support suspending the grocery tax. 65% of Democrats, pretty close there. 28% oppose it. On the Democrat side, 22% Republicans. Now, this article in the Mississippi Today, by the way, that discusses this poll, says Mississippi's 7% tax on most retail items is one of the nation's highest. You see, there's just one little detail they're leaving out there, Rhino. First, the 7% is not one of the nation's highest in terms of the state, state, portion of sales tax. I did review it. It's, it's in the middle, honestly. It's not the highest. 
It's in the middle. But fair enough. What they fail to discuss, little detail, is that most states also have local taxes layered on. People really just care about what is my sales tax at the cash register. They're not thinking about, oh, well, I'm okay with that 9.45%, which is what I believe it is in Alabama, because it's still only 6 at the state level. It's lower than Mississippi 7, except in reality, what's applied to the purchase is 2.5% more in Alabama, as an example. They just kind of conveniently forgot that little itty-bitty fact. So in Mississippi, we don't have too many local jurisdictions that have received permission from the state and have layered on additional tax. The city of Jackson comes to mind as one, and you know what that was purported to achieve? Fixing the water system. How'd that work out? Still got problems with it. Yep. Um, Structural problems. So that just really, it's just disingenuous to say that because on the surface, you know, you may look at that and say, well, yeah, other states have lower state-level sales taxes, but that doesn't take into consideration the total tax that's levied on the purchase, which includes... In some cases, municipal and county tax. Some cases, it's just one. Um, it's one or the other. But uh, having installed software in a number of states that had to deal with sales tax rates, it's complicated. Extremely complicated. And so when you dig into it to try to understand the uh, the application of sales tax, you've got to consider the municipal and potential county portion that's lapped on to the state's portion. So the states with the highest sales tax, if you look real quickly on the surface, California at the state level at seven and a quarter, Indiana, Mississippi, Rhode Island, Tennessee, all have a seven percent state tax. But in Mississippi, with the exception of only a couple, I could, Jackson, is there something maybe on the coast? Folks, help me out with that. There, there are not many, I mean, in, you could count in one hand, municipalities that have added. And none of them are 9 and 10%. Yeah, they don't go to that, they don't rise to, rise to that level. So, for example, Alabama has a low state sales tax. But... When you look at their overall tax rate, it's 9.25%. In fact, the five states with the highest total combined state and local sales tax, talking just about sales taxes, listen to the, the pecking order here. Louisiana, just to our west, 9.55%. Tennessee, 9.55%. Arkansas, 9.47%. And Alabama, 9.24. So four of the top five all border our state with the total, total combined sales tax rate. Well, it's, it's just the way they portray this is not telling the whole story. No, an activist journalist becomes <laughs> a misleader and misrepresenter with misinformation? No. 
They don't have an axe to grind. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm looking at the state sales tax rates here, and, and you know, they range from zero in Alaska up to the seven and a quarter in California. Mississippi is, is toward the top of the list, but the overall sales tax rate combined in Mississippi, 7.07%. We're near the bottom in the overall tax liability. Coming right back on Middays in the Element Well Studios. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. A man walks down the street, he says, Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It's the final segment uh, of Middays. I've been watching the markets on the business news on the television in here. Hopping around. <laughs> Woo! The old kangaroo's got to be worn out by now. Investors consuming a flurry of earnings reports. The big one in store is Microsoft after the bell. Honestly, I think all that's baked in already. And listening to the various Wall Street analysts, no consensus. It's all over the map. That's what makes the buyers and sellers, though. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I know a few folks have texted in. There are a few municipalities that receive permission to layer on additional sales tax mainly on prepared foods. And and that was passed by the citizens in those municipalities, in some cases, to, to um, produce funding for certain projects. Meridian is an example. I think Flowood as well. But overall, folks, the average sales tax rate in the state of Mississippi comes in at 7.07%. I have verified that through multiple sources. That's uh, that's just fact. So now it's certainly true that state needs revenue to operate, municipalities need revenue to operate, counties need revenue, and in Mississippi, that's derived from different sources: property taxes, ad valorem taxes on license plates, etc generally, in general, fund county operations. Sales taxes, the 18.2% diversion, meaning 18.2% of the 7% levied by the state. State has a 7% sales tax. It uh, That's collected by the Department of Revenue. Retailers remit their sales tax reports and associated payments to the Department of Revenue, the state retains uh, 81.8% of that. And the the 18.2% uh, gets whacked off and sent to the cities. Sales tax diversions. That's how cities function. That's their source of revenue. When they lap on these additional 
taxes at the municipal level, those, of course, go straight to the municipality. It's for that purpose. So it stays with the municipality, such as the 2% prepared foods tax. It's what it's called. That uh, is levied in Meridian, as an example. Yeah, Ben from Madison reports, yeah, geez, now classified documents have been found at Pence's home. It's getting silly at this point. I've seen that as well. I'm sure if we kept looking, we'd find them all over the dang place. Not an excuse for it. It's just reality. William in Greenville says sometimes tourism tax. That's right. That could be also applied in, uh, in lodging. No doubt. And, and those are for various purposes. But in general, the state sales tax is not, when you look at the total, the aggregate of retail sales taxes paid in Mississippi, it is not among the highest. It's just not. So I'm refuting what was reported here. It is true if you just looked at the 7% portion, but that just doesn't, the, the state's uh, portion, the state rate. Which means you really only have two options on the reporting. Either it's intentionally and willfully inaccurate, or the reporter's ignorant. One or the other. It could be one or the other. Right. But it's, it's not po- conveying to the public reading that, oh my gosh, the sales tax in Mississippi is among the highest in the country. we got to stop that. And I just shared with you folks, you're welcome to go verify me on this, that every single state that touches ours, it borders ours, when you look at their combined uh, sales, uh, state sales tax, local and county sales tax, all of those have higher rates. This was talked about in the discussion last year when the first bill, the House, introduced that would have eliminated, phased out the income tax. It also included, uh, I believe, a 1.5% increase of the sales tax. And the argument was made, hey, that just puts us still below, but maybe closer to our neighboring states. However, we're getting rid of our income tax. So this narrative being promoted, and it could be, maybe maybe people would rather see a break on their grocery taxes than they would on their income taxes. You know, I think they need to do the math and understand the ramifications of that from an economic expansion perspective. I'm not sure that is the most efficient and effective way to collect taxes. Tomorrow we're going to talk about this uh, fair tax that the Democrats are pouncing on. I told you it was coming, that the Republicans over on the House side are slated to vote on. But we're out of time here today. We thank you so much for joining us back in the studios tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.